Hi, hi, this is the Travelling Symphony Movie Club. My name is John. And I'm Katie. Hi, everyone. And this is our companion podcast for Okja, which we watched on Friday night as our live watch along with the Travelling Symphony community. Uh, we've got another fantastic podcast conversation for you today. And I think it really exemplifies what we're trying to do with these podcasts in that it uses the film as a jumping off point to really expand your knowledge about these very important and complicated subjects. And we spoke to Dr. Helen Pilcher, who is the author of Life Changing, How Humans Are Altering Life on Earth. She is an expert in genetic modification, how humans have altered animals throughout our history, really, both psychologically and physiologically, what the technology is doing now, what it's capable of, and where it could be going in the future as well. Another fantastic science chat for you. Another career change cell biology i've got so many career changes to do now i can't keep track of them can't keep track of everything paleontologist slash cell biologist slash 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 yeah give him a go <laughs> not in that way <laughs> what was your favorite part of the conversation do you think just that it gave me so much more knowledge and understanding of what genetically modifying animals and plants is and the huge impacts that it's had on the world and ecosystems and life as a whole. It's so much wider than just the food industry. So that for me was really important to be able to understand that and to see actually how much of a whole we really are in and to learn a little bit about the potential future solutions for getting out of some of these problems, which are very different to what I imagine they would be. A line that she says in the interview, which really stuck with me, was when she said there's not one species or one living organism that humans haven't altered, indirectly or directly. And she said, like, maybe like a bacteria that's living in a permafrost in the Arctic, but that's really just about it. It shows the extent of what we're doing, the extent of what we've done, the fact that we've been at this for thousands of years. But something that really also fascinated me was the level of genetic modification that we're actually doing now and that it's not too far away from the things that are shown in the film. Also, the complex ethical issues that are raised in the film and around genetically modifying organisms, those are things that I thought maybe were conversations that we'd need to be having in five, ten years' time, but actually they're here today. Like This is issues that we need to be talking about now. Yeah, so I think that's enough from us and you'll now hear from Dr. Helen Pilcher and she started off by explaining how she got involved in the field. I am a stem cell biologist by training, although I'm not a practicing scientist now. So I've always been interested in genetics and when I worked as a scientist, I was working out how to genetically modify cells with a view to curing human diseases. So that's one part of my background. The other part is I've always been interested in the natural world and in wildlife. So it's kind of a natural fusion of those two issues. And my first book, as you probably know, was about de-extinction. So Jurassic Park style, can you bring extinct creatures back to life? And the short answer is possibly, yes, we can. And in that book, I explored maybe about a dozen projects that are ongoing around the world with people trying to de-extinct various animals. And when I came to the end of that, it made me think, wow, if this is an emerging technology that is becoming possible, what else are we doing 
to the natural world. You know, this is an extreme manipulation of evolution where you're almost making evolution run backwards. You're bringing back something that went extinct. If we can do that, what else are we capable of? And it got me thinking about this idea of how humans are shaping evolution because the earth has been shaped by natural forces in uh, inverted commas for billions of years, obviously. And humans, are, we're quite a, a recent invention, if you like. So modern humans, the last 350,000 years, in terms of really having an impact on the planet and starting to shape and steer evolution, we're talking the last 30,000 years. Uh, and that really began with the onset of domestication. Look at what we're capable of now. You know, we can make precise targeted changes to the DNA of animals and bring about very specific changes. And that raises a whole host of questions, you know, just because we can do this. Uh, should we do this, as, as Jeff Goldblum's character <laughs> famously says in Jurassic Park? So, yeah, that's where my interest comes from. You mentioned that, that this sort of genetic or evolutionary manipulation starts with domestication and with this sort of almost instinctive selective breeding that early humans had when they were starting to domesticate animals. I found it really interesting when reading your book about this sort of idea that we've been doing this for a very long time. This isn't like a new concept, but it might be something that was implanted in our psyche early on that we're trying to sort of gain control over animals and the way that they they live. I mean, we've been using animals for a very, very long time, you know, even before there were modern humans around. Our ancestors before that were interacting with the natural world and using it for food, using it for products, if you like. And domestication is really where this mastery of the control of evolution began. And it's really interesting because when, when you think about domestication, really what that is, is a very kind of laissez-faire method of genetic modification so you can't see him but sleeping at my feet now is a genetically modified wolf which I keep in my house and I let him play with my children and he's become very tame he's a very weird looking wolf uh, really weird so he's probably about half the size of a regular wolf uh, and instead of that sort of classic sleek silver peppery fur he has this embarrassment of black and white curls he has um a tail that wags and as you can see where i'm going with this he is of course a dog because dogs are genetically modified wolves so billions of us keep these genetically modified animals in our homes but we don't think of them as genetically modified and when we think of things that are genetically modified we think they're freakish and unnatural but of course all genetic modification means is that we've been altering the DNA of something over time. And the methods that brought about domestication, all of the domestic crops that we eat and all of the domestic species that we share the planet with were very, very low tech, but incredibly successful. So if you look at something like the transition of the wolf to the cockapoo who was sitting next <laughs> to me, these two animals couldn't be more different. We have manipulated the natural world massively. And now you see people getting very, very upset about scientists proposing to modify one key gene. Well, you know, I've got news for you. We have manipulated hundreds, maybe thousands of genes through the relationship that we've had with animals over the years. So that we now end up going back to the example of, of the dog with a subspecies of an animal. So the dog is a subspecies of, of wolf. 
um, where you have this enormous amount of diversity. So we have everything from a Chihuahua to a Great Dane and in between. And we've created um, more variety amongst dogs than exists in any other animal anywhere on the earth. And that is our doing. And again, when you think about it, that's marvellous. I adore my dog. I think he is right up there after my children in terms of my my (laughs) favourite things on this planet. (laughs) However, and this is a really interesting point that hooks in with the film, we quite often create animals on a whim, on a bit of a fancy, with little thought really for the welfare of the animals that we create. So although a crossbreed like a cockapoo is actually a pretty healthy strain of dog, you don't have to look far amongst the breeds of dogs that are out there before you come across breeds of dogs that have very serious congenital health problems that are our fault. So um, bulldogs, for example, uh, pugs, any of these breeds that have the very shortened faces, they may be lovely, lovely pets and you know individually just the most gorgeous animals. Yet we've selectively bred this breed over time to have this flattened face creating all sorts of breathing difficulties. Most bulldogs now have to be born by caesarean section because the dimensions of the puppy's heads means that they won't fit through the birth canal properly. And we've created these changes in this breed on a whim because we liked the look of it. We didn't really think very hard about what this would mean for the animal. So there is this tinkering with the natural evolutionary process. And sometimes it ends up really well and we end up with animals who are healthy and where the relationship works well and sometimes we end up with things that are really quite dysfunctional and we seem to turn a blind eye to some of those things which I find quite disturbing. Also something that I've thought about before but also a lot more since watching the film in the last few days because we have um, a dog as well a family dog he's a little uh, staffy cross or I say little he's not so little. (laughs) Um, The idea of owning an animal is strange. And although he has a great life and we look after him really well, I find it weird that we walk pets on leads and own another life. And that's how we how we see it. You know, it's very much an ownership thing. And I think that that's a bit uncomfortable for me. Ownership of animals is a very recent invention. Again, you know, we're talking within the last, I don't know, five, six hundred years, something like that. You know, for most of human history, we didn't own animals. We lived alongside animals. Domestication, when it began, was this relationship between us and the animals around us that work well for both of us. So we kind of hang out a little bit more. But it's really interesting because this idea of ownership is is very different when you look at different animals in different parts of the world. So, for example, in Mongolia, there are wild horses and there are, in inverted commas, domestic horses um, that are, in inverted commas, owned by the herdsmen who look after them. However, they're pretty much left to their own devices for a lot of the time. They have a, a really nice wild life a lot of the time, hanging out with the wild horses. And then from time to time, the herdsman would go out and corral them in. Uh, You know, and he might sell one here or there. He might chop one up and put it in the pot. But it's a very different sort of relationship to a very privileged middle class white teenager who might belong to the pony club. Uh, you know, who has livery on a a pony that lives in a a very posh stable down the road. You know, they're both owned, but these are two very different animals. I think the morning after we watched the film and we were talking about 
the agency of animals and that horse example that you mentioned they for a large part of their life they have that agency and then they are sort of at points in time brought back in and released back but when we think about our domesticated animals they have virtually no agency and they don't know a life outside of what we tell them to do exactly which is, which is weird and and it's, and it's something that i'd never thought about at all before we had this conversation and, and more importantly because we've bred them in this way and because all they have ever intended to be is pets they can't survive outside in the well probably cats could but you know dogs certainly couldn't survive outside in the world so it's like we've created these animals for this one particular purpose and they serve that purpose and that is i think quite a dark thought <laughs> we laugh because we have a a friend in the village where we live who has a dog and we, not to her face, call her dog Robo Dog because it's a dog that has been so highly trained, right? It needs to be told what to do most of the time. When it's on a walk, it's told to sit, stay, come, stop. It's brilliantly trained. It's a beautiful dog. But how much of a real dog is there in there? Now, I look at my dog who's sleeping on the floor next to me. He's waiting for me to tell him that I'm going to do something lovely with him, like make him a meal or take him out for a walk. So again, is he happy? I, I think he is happy, but you're absolutely right. You know, we have bred these animals to be exactly how we want them to be. And that's not just changing them physically, that's changing the way their brains are wired and that's changing the way they behave and the way they think to a degree as well. So the, these are really profound changes that we've made and these sort of changes that we've made through domestication and selective breeding go far deeper than a lot of the changes that some scientists or agricultural groups want to bring about by direct genetic modification you know what we've done to the natural world already is incredibly extreme yet it has become so normalized to us that we don't even see that these changes have happened when you watch a film like Okja and then you see some very real and very horrible potential outcomes of genetic modification, it comes as a shock and you see it as this massive leap from what we've already done. But as you say, it's not really a leap. It, it's sort of been there under the surface all along. And this is our attitude and our behaviour towards the world around us, that we can just play God and do what we like. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely right. If, if you look at domestic pigs, and you compare them with wild boar, they are really very, very different. So we've already genetically modified pigs when we domesticated and created pigs. We've changed the number of, of bones in their spines through selective breeding. Domestic pigs have an extra vertebra in their spine compared to wild pigs, and that suited us. That would have been a, a freak genetic mutation that cropped up at some point. Somebody noticed that this pig was slightly bigger and longer than all the other pigs, so they bred from it. And this characteristic was inherited over the years. And, and that's just one way that we've changed pigs. This was this idea of selective breeding. But now there's all sorts of proposed changes. A couple that are sort of relevant to the film. In the early 2000s, there were a couple of different types of genetically modified pig that were actually created. Uh, one became known as the Popeye pig because scientists altered a gene. They put in a gene from, from spinach plants into pigs right so this is weird this is a transgenic this is taking a, 
a gene from one species and putting it in another. And in theory, there's no reason why you can't do that because DNA is this universal language. So they put in this gene with the idea of creating pigs that had a much healthier fat profile, so more unsaturated fats. And the idea was that this would be a more healthy type of pork. But consumers weren't keen and the product folded. Uh, They had to euthanize all of the pigs. And around about the same time, a different research group created something called the EnviroPig, which contained a gene that breaks down the phosphorus that is found in the feed grains of a lot of pigs. And the result was that the um, excrement produced by these animals had 75% less phosphorus in it. Now, that's really important because we know that when nutrients like phosphorus come into contact with the land and get washed into rivers and down out to sea, we know they can create toxic algal blooms that can suffocate wildlife. So the idea here was a pig that was kinder to the environment. Uh, But the project got the chop, uh, if you excuse the pun, (laughs) again, because people weren't interesting. And and watching uh, the little snippets of the film that I've seen, the scientist in the film says she wants to create a pig that leaves a minimal footprint on the environment consumes less feed, produces less excretions and tastes good. Well, we have sort of already made pigs like that, but people didn't have the appetite for them. When you think about all of these sorts of things, and we are already doing this, and I had not thought that we were so far along the path of genetic modification. Maybe, if I just use myself as an example, maybe this isn't something that is in the wider consciousness. Maybe people don't realise how much we're already actually doing Could you sort of explain what the sort of latest technologies are and what's being used at the moment to genetically modify animals? Genetically modified plants are widely out there and widely being consumed. And there is a big hoo-ha about it all. And it's all kind of blown over. And although most people don't realise they're eating genetically modified plants, you are. In terms of genetically modified animals, people have been creating these things for some time. But the projects have either folded because, you know, there wasn't the consumer demand or because of regulatory problems in getting these products in inverted commas through to the market. So the salmon is really the fish equivalent of octa in the film. This is a, a fish that basically has been genetically engineered using a sort of gene editing technique that I'll tell you about in a moment. And it contains DNA from two different species. So it contains a growth hormone gene from another type of salmon. And it creates a promoter from a fish called an ocean pout. And all a promoter does is switch a gene on and off. And the result is you end up with this um, Atlantic salmon that contains two added genes. And the result is it grows twice as fast, twice as big. And yet to do that consumes 25% less feed than regular salmon. This is absolutely the fish equivalent of the pig in the movie. This fish was actually made 25 years ago with technology, which is considered primitive by today's standard, but basically gene editing. It's been a long time coming to market because uh, largely of regulatory issues. But now it's actually on sale in Canada and people are tucking into this fish in sort of high end sushi bars back in the days when they were open uh, and, and enjoying it you know, a lot of people don't realise that they're eating genetically modified salmon. So it is already out there. The game changer in recent years, and this is just since 2012, is a a new gene editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9. And you'll see it in the media, in the newspapers, very often. 
in relation to the concept of creating designer babies, this gene editing um, technology could be used for good, which is to cure people of inherited disorders, to create better models of disease so that we can develop new therapies for diseases. And that is absolutely predominantly where most of the research is going on. But people are also worried that if this technique is as easy to use as scientists say it is, at some point in the future, would somebody genetically modify a human to create a designer baby, namely to be more beautiful or more athletic or maybe more disease resistant, which is an interesting idea for today's times. And if that became possible, would it be safe and who would have access to this technology? Would it create a two-tiered society of those that can afford gene editing and those that can't. But this is a, a fairly straightforward technique, CRISPR-Cas9. And what it means is that rather than taking hundreds of years to selectively breed a strain of animals, you can now introduce genetic change across a generation. So we have suddenly pressed the fast forward on evolution, if you like. We've pressed the fast forward button on selective breeding. We can make targeted precise changes to the DNA of animals in a single generation and bring about changes that farmers have been wanting to bring about in animals for a very long time, but that have been unable to do. In Uruguay, for example, some of the farmers there have these Mourinho sheep, you know, the ones that produce the really, really beautiful fine wool. And they're, they're fabulous sheep for making woolly jumpers, but they're rubbish sheep for the pot because they're scrawny, right? So, of course, if you're a sheep breeder, the holy grail would be to try and create a Mourinho sheep that has the wool that is well muscled and creates a, you know, a nice amount of meat so that you have a dual purpose animal. Farmers would want that. Now, they've been trying to do that with selective breeding for a very, very long time and largely failed. But a group who work in Uruguay have now basically done this using this CRISPR-Cas9. They've edited a tiny bit of DNA, just a single gene, uh, which is well known and created these double muscled Mourinho sheep. Now, they're, they're not tinkering with nature in a sense here, because although what they're doing is artificial, they're actually just looking at a mutation that occurs naturally. So we have animals like this already. For example, there are breeds of cattle that are naturally very, very muscly. People have worked out what is the gene that causes that and what is the particular sequence of letters within that gene that causes it. And they're just tweaking um, the DNA in the sheep ever so slightly, just a couple of letters here and there, so that it has this double muscling body. They're not putting in a gene that doesn't exist in the natural world. It already exists in the natural world. It's just selective breeding might have taken us two or three hundred years to get there. Instead, they've made this change in a single generation. And it's this that is leading to the creation of lots of new types of animals. It's this that is being used in the field of de-extinction to help bring back animals like the woolly mammoth. It's this that has people both excited and terrified in equal measures, I think. We now live in a world with limited resources. We're facing very, very serious consequences from climate change. So if there's a potential to alter our food chain in a way that minimises our environmental impact, that could be fantastic. If a whole future generation of humans could be resilient to all coronaviruses, that would also be brilliant. But 
you know, you do have to sort of think about, okay, what are the potential drawbacks and why are people so worried? And I know there was um, a section in your book where you talk about something with cattle when they artificially inseminated breeds with semen from a cattle who had a particular genetic mutation that was supposed to be positive or it had a positive characteristic but they also didn't realize that that same mutation caused stillbirths and then there were 500 million stillbirths is that correct is that am i yeah yeah no that's absolutely right so there's a story in the book about a very famous sire so a a, a bull that was being used for breeding uh called chief and he was a holstein bull what you see in the agriculture industry, and I think a lot of people don't realise this, is what you see is that the whole gene pool is being dominated by just a few very, very successful individuals. So what that means is that you have an individual who is highly, highly sought after, and this poor bull would be absolutely exhausted if he had to travel around the country meeting all the females that he was meant to be producing offspring with. But one of the biggest game changers in agriculture is the advent of artificial insemination. So it's a very, very straightforward procedure to collect semen from a prize bull. And you can then use that semen to artificially inseminate literally hundreds of thousands of cows. And then it's a way of passing uh, that bull's winning genes through the gene pool and through future generations. And this has been happening for quite some time now. Now, this prize bull called Chief, he was incredibly successful and prolific. And during his lifetime, across the generations, I think he had something like two million great granddaughters. What people didn't realise, actually, until they came to really, really study this a lot later, was that there was a hidden cost here. Although his offspring were being born healthy, when people really started to study this, actually, there were lots of offspring that weren't being born at all. There was something in this bull's DNA that made the offspring that survived absolutely fantastic. But there was also some genetic mutation that was in there that was causing um, stillbirths and abortions. Over, I think it was 35 years, it led to uh, half a million spontaneous abortions, which cost the industry something like $400 million in losses. And you would think the industry would go, whoa, wait a minute here, uh, something needs to change. This is obviously not great for the cows, certainly not great for the, the lives that never get to be, and, and not good for the industry because we're losing money here. But the slightly warped and twisted thing is that even though that was the case, the DNA from this, this one individual was still creating about $30 billion of profit in increased milk production. People still are quite prepared to overlook this because, uh, you know, the milk production and, and making the bucks is what it's all about. I, and I think that's really comes to the heart of of the message that Bong Joon-ho was trying to get across in Okja was that it all sort of comes down to this profit-driven desire and that the drawbacks are so offset by the money that can be made that people are willing to overlook the damage done to animals on a industrial scale. It's interesting to hear that this is all already happening and whilst it can be mentioned in a film like this, it's a real-life example as well. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that they have to use genetic modification to actually bring this issue to the fore because, yes, in the future, perhaps we might see these, these issues with mass-produced genetically modified animals, maybe. But a lot of the um, broader concerns about animal welfare are already out there. So a lot of the domestic animals we have created have serious health problems because we've prioritised 
our gains and our wish list over the animal's health. That's out there. But also the big issue that's out there now uh, is the way we raise our farm animals. We have something like 70 billion farm animals on the planet. And two thirds of those are industrially raised in factory farms. And this is having like a real toll in many different ways. So it has a toll on the animals themselves. They do not have the natural sort of life I think most decent people would want for them. They do not have the enrichment. They do not enjoy the health that organic and pasture reared animals manage to gain. But along the way, this is a really short sighted strategy for producing our food because we're creating long term damage through the way that we, we manage our food system. When you pen up all of these animals inside chicken sheds or feedlots for cattle, you have to feed them because now they're not actually scrabbling around in the dirt, pecking at worms or they're not grazing grass in a field. So you've got to feed them something. So now you get this weird and warped situation where food that was being used to grow food for humans to eat is now being used to grow food for animals to eat. What we're seeing now is wilderness on one side of the world being destroyed in order to grow crops to feed animals on the other side of the world. So we're seeing vast swathes of the Amazon rainforest, for example, being cleared to grow crops like um, soya and palm. And these crops are being fed to industrially reared animals. And that's a real problem. We're seeing something like, I think, a third of the world's cereal harvest, 90% of our soya meal, and 30% of the global fish catch not going to humans, but going to animals. And this is a problem because we're devastating the land that we need to grow these crops. In Indonesia, you're seeing species like the Sumatra elephant, uh, the orangutan becoming endangered because we're wrecking their habitat. It's vastly inefficient because we've now got this extra layer in the food production process. So we're growing plants to feed to animals, to feed to humans. Energy is wasted along that chain. If we just ate the primary energy source or let animals graze, it would be a more efficient process. And on top of that now, we know also that factory farming is a massive driver of climate change. So all of these things have become interlinked. Factory farming, biodiversity loss and climate change are this awful byproduct of the way that we manage and produce these species whose genomes we have changed immensely over the last 10,000 years and the system is broken and it needs to change. So it's damaging the animals, but it's damaging the planet and that is going to come back and bite us on the bum in a, in a very serious way. I mean, it's already happening. It's only going to get worse unless we, we fix the way that we produce our food. I read somewhere that if we changed all of the land use, as you mentioned, that was crops grown for the purpose of feeding animals, if we changed all of that back to grassland and had animals grazing, that just that amount of grass being there would reverse carbon emissions in something like 10 years or something. You know, it was like a crazy statistic that, you know, what we're doing is just insane. And plus the fact that we keep ravaging all of the soil with producing way too many crops, not letting the land recover. So our soil is just slowly eroding. It's a disaster. I mean, there is a fabulous man called Philip Limbury who heads up the organisation Compassion in World Farming. And he's written about this in uh, enormous detail in several of his books, which are well worth a read. Uh, and he points out that we have about 
40 years worth of fertility left in our soil, natural fertility. That's, you know, in our children's lifetime, there won't be any naturally fertile soil left for them to grow crops, provided they've got the climate that lets them grow crops in the first place. And he also makes the point that if we were to return grain-fed animals from factory farms to pasture and give the cereals and crops that we were feeding them to people, we would have enough extra food to feed 4 billion people. Um, if we did the same with all the, the fish meal that we're using to feed to animals, we'd have enough to feed an extra 1 billion people. So it's it's completely messed up and people are blinkered to what is happening. The cost of cheap meat has been the driving force behind this. And we, we have this positive swing towards eating less meat, towards eating more pasture-fed and organic meat. And these are really, really positive steps. You know, these are things that every single person listening to this podcast can do to make a difference. Say no to factory farmed products, care about where you source your meat from, or think about not eating meat. Or another really interesting one, whilst we're in the realms of science fiction and genetic modification, and I struggle with this as a vegetarian, in the future, we'll see the rise of lab-grown meat. If people are struggling with the concept of eating a genetically modified pig, how will people react to the idea of taking a muscle biopsy from a pig? So this needs to happen once, in theory. And you can, in theory, culture that cell almost an infinite number of times to grow muscle in a dish and fashion it into burgers. And this has already been done. It's just not being scaled up at the moment. And, and people are uncertain, again, how consumers will react. So we're doing a really good job at the moment of not just screwing over the whole food system, but the animals that remain, so the breeds of cattle that remain, the breeds of pig that remain, they are really inbred now because we have, as I explained earlier, you know, single individuals dominating the gene pool. And so if we don't look after these precious resources that we have, we might find ourselves doing a really spectacular job of pushing even farm animals to extinction. And you can imagine this rather unpleasant scenario in the future, which would make another really interesting film where there aren't any cows in the fields or even in factory farms, but where all meat comes from a giant bioreactor where burgers are grown in, in Petri dishes or vats. I don't really think any of us want that. I'm not convinced by this argument. I think we have the ability to turn food production around into what we would perceive as a more natural way. And I think it would be a win-win for people and for the environment if we do that. We just choose to gloss over all of these things that are happening. This is such a common thing in the human psyche. You know, why do something naturally and the way it was supposed to and the way that evolution has given us over millions and billions of years, why do that when we can just come up with our own, you know, harebrained solution that <laughs> is completely untested and we have no idea what the long-term ramifications are going to be? We've got to this warped situation as well where there are groups out there now that are trying to work out ways of getting more genetic diversity back into the domestic farm animals that we have. So genetic diversity simply means DNA sequences that are varied and different. And that's what happens naturally when you have individual members of the same species. But if you let species inbreed or if you let small numbers of animals reproduce over long periods of time, and we're doing both those things, you end up with a population of animals that doesn't have very much genetic diversity. And that's a problem because it means that as the world changes, changing rapidly at the moment, these animals may not have the genetic wherewithal to survive change. They may be less resistant to infectious diseases, for example. 
less resistant to climate change. And so we find ourselves in this situation where we have been just through lack of forethought, I think, shifting our farm animals to this slightly inbred dimension where they don't have much genetic diversity and where they are becoming endangered. So so we have people out there now who are trying to find ways of putting genetic diversity back into domestic animals. There's a project in the Netherlands called the Taurus Project, and they are breeding together. So just standard selective breeding, breeding together primitive breeds of cattle. So the kind of things that led to the modern breeds of cattle, we still have some of these primitive breeds left, and they're breeding them together to try and almost sort of turn history back in the opposite direction to reverse the domestication process to de-extinct if you like what was the ancestor of all of today's modern cattle which is um, a fascinating beast called the aurochs and that might sound kind of scary but actually there's good ecological reasons for doing this particular project and that is that sometimes when species disappear and when they go extinct you leave a, a vacant ecological niche behind the ecosystem sort of becomes out of kilter And the idea is that these domestic cattle that have primitive features would be allowed to roam. They'd be free ranging. These are not for farming. These are to uh, release back into areas like the Velabit Mountains in Croatia, where there are already some living. And what you're seeing there is you have these really hardy cattle that can see off the wolves. And they have this beautiful natural behaviour that you don't see in domestic cattle because we don't let domestic cattle have these kinds of lives. They form these creches of animals where the adults will go off and forage and and the little calves will be left in a creche with somebody keeping an eye on them. So you get this beautiful natural behaviour and you get these animals contributing to an ecosystem that they were once part of. We've had to do that because we didn't have the foresight to try and keep the aurochs alive. Conservationists, we think very carefully about conservation, about wild animals. And that's something I'm passionate about. But whilst we're on the topic of domestic animals, very few people think about the conservation of domestic animals and what we lose by letting many of these breeds of domestic animals go extinct. And we're seeing breeds of domestic cattle, for example, going extinct really, really rapidly at the moment so that we have this whole industry that's dominated by very few breeds. And again, that's a really short-sighted strategy. It's just a classic. It seems this repeating human behaviour of short-term gain for long-term pain. And you can map that across any number of fields and stories. And it's just a never-ending cycle of it. And it's it's quite tragic, really. But it's good to hear that there is some work being done to try to reverse some of these trends. And I think that that's a little ray of hope that there might be some positive changes coming. I've spoken really about us changing animals for our gain. I think what we should be thinking about, and this is quite controversial, if we accept that genetic modification like CRISPR is the modern day version of selective breeding, which we've been doing for centuries, if if we're okay with that as a concept, which I think is a valid argument, how about instead of manipulating animals for our gain, How about we manipulate animals for their gain? So how about, for example, and people are doing this using CRISPR to edit the DNA of cattle so that they are more resistant to disease? Going back to the pig theme of the film, there are groups who are out there who are genetically modifying pigs to be resistant to swine fever, which is a viral disease that's absolutely horrific. It's quite common in parts of Africa where it causes pigs to bleed to death within a week. And there's no vaccine for this disease. 
But what people realised was that um, African pigs, so things like bush pigs and warthogs, are naturally resistant to this gene because they have a slightly different spelling of a key immune system gene. And so what people are doing at the Roslin Institute in Scotland is they're editing just these five letter changes into the genome of domestic pigs to try and make them resistant to disease. Now, some people will still have a problem with that, and I, I can understand where people are coming from. I'm not in favour of these tweaks for animal welfare if we lead to a pool of animals that is monopolised by um, corporate giants. But if you could get these animals out to small scale farmers who live in rural parts of Africa, whose livelihood depends on the very few animals that they own, it could be a game changer. You could wait 300 years for this mutation to crop up spontaneously in the animals that they own. Or you could do it in a research institution in Scotland and ship the animals to them and then let them breed them. As a society, we need to discuss these kind of things. But I think what we do need to do is develop the science to a point where we can at least get a grasp on its usefulness, how safe it is, how confident we are with the ethics of all of this, and get it to a point where, as a society, we can then decide how we want to go ahead with this. But we need to be doing the basic research that leads us to that point when we can start making those decisions. And then if you want to take this idea even further, how about genetically modifying wildlife? That seems to cross a line for many people because wild animals are wild and that would be really, really messing with nature. But hey, we are now in this bizarre situation uh, where humans have become this planetary scale force. And the changes that we are making to our planet through climate change, through um, habitat loss, through everything that we're doing, we're actually skewing the evolutionary trajectory of all living things on Earth now. There may be some microbe in an ice sheet in Antarctica that is immune to our activities, but this won't last. So we are skewing the course of evolution across the globe. We're doing it deliberately within domestic animals and we're doing it inadvertently in wild animals. So I'm kind of open-minded again to the idea of developing the idea of genetically modifying key wild animals if there is something in it for them, if they are so endangered, if their future is so bleak, if they're in so much of a bottleneck that they can't get out of it. If we have the technology at our fingertips to give them a future, I think there's some sort of responsibility on us to at least consider that and develop the technology to a point where we can decide whether this is something we want to do. Like you say, there are so many discussions to be had. And my main concern is always who are the people that will be making these decisions? And more importantly, who are the big giant corporations that will be influencing those decisions? Because on the face of it, I think that sounds excellent to be able to make a small change to an endangered species. But then does that give license to a corporation who's, for instance, polluting some kind of waterway? Can they just continue polluting it if they genetically modify the fish in that waterway to handle the pollution? I don't know, maybe I'm cynical, but I think <laughs> that corporations would always find a way to make it work for them. What we're living through now is an unprecedented time where we can see that we can change our ways, where we can see that we can massively slice carbon emissions, you know, not under the circumstances that we would ever have wished for, but that as a global community, we are capable of great change and we are capable of coming together and making sensible decisions. And I would like to think that uh, at some point, common sense might prevail. There have been um, 
instances in the past where global corporations have produced drugs, for example, I think there was a drug with HIV, uh, where it was produced and it was patented and um, it was going to cost a lot of money to get it to people. And there was an absolute outcry. And as a result, the global corporation stepped down and the drug became widely available. I would like to think that common sense would prevail. But this is a concern. We have technology shared between academic institutions and then we have corporate companies out there who are driven by profit. Having worked in both sectors, there's a very different ethos behind them. They're both driven by the thirst for knowledge, but one to me seems slightly purer than the other because there's no profit involved. One question that I did want to ask, what did you think the future holds for this field of research and what do you see coming down the track in the next few years time is there anything that we should be looking out for or things that we might be able to see coming out of these these new technologies i think what we'll see is the predominant use of gene editing being within the human realm and i think that's right so the predominant use of gene editing as i mentioned before is to create better models of disease. It's to understand how diseases occur, what goes wrong, and how we might treat them better. And that's where it's incredibly valuable. That's where it's leading to breakthroughs in the clinic already. Uh, Where this will go in the future is the direct genetic manipulation of humans. And there's two ways that can go. One is looking at maybe people who have faulty DNA in their bodies, people with cancer, for example, creating some kind of therapy that might help them. Some people will have a problem with, but I think people are largely quite open minded about. And then we have this other category of diseases where they are inherited. And this is actually where ethically most people find this quite troubling, because it means that if you alter the DNA of a person and they then have children, but if you fixed a faulty gene, it means their children definitely won't get it. Now, I think if you ask people who have troubling diseases running through their families, if they could be guaranteed to have children and they'd never get their disease and those children could have children and be guaranteed not to inherit the disease. Most people would see that as really positive, but a lot of people see that as you have to be really careful because you're creating changes that will be passed down the generation for good or for bad. And one of the things I suppose that I haven't mentioned is that we can alter the DNA of living things with pinpoint precision now, but sometimes that does create unwanted side effects, which we need to be very mindful of. It can create problems and people are very aware of this. So I've made it sound very, very simple and straightforward. We would have to be incredibly cautious. So I think the main uses of of genetic modification will continue to be in medical research. In terms of the non-human animal kingdom, the genetic modification of wildlife is a quite a fanciful idea for a lot of people. De-extinction is being researched, but I don't think we're about to see a herd of of woolly mammoths stampeding across Siberia anytime soon, which I'm a bit gutted about, but hey, (laughs) no dinosaurs coming back. That's a real bummer. (laughs) (laughs) But what we will continue to see is um, people tweaking the DNA of domestic animals deliberately. So we will see maybe not the super pig that we see in the film, but we are likely to see genetically modified farm animals begin this really sort of torturous process of going through the regulatory process to see whether or not they get to the point where they can be released for human use. And then we have to find out if humans actually want to use these products or consume these products. So I think things like these Mourinho sheep that are woolly and meaty will be some of the first kind of animals to come through this process. There there are herds of these sheep, perfectly healthy, 
beautiful animals on a, a research facility on their farm in Uruguay. But now it's up to consumers to work out if they want these products and farmers to see if they want these products. Calling them products, these these are living things. (laughs) And slipping into corporate speak. (laughs) But, you know, how will these things be controlled and marketed? And I think that's where the future goes. I think we will see genetic modification being used as a sort of natural progression in the selective breeding process. So, uh, yeah, I guess watch this genetically modified space. (laughs) Oh, I think I'm terrified overall. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I've done my job well. (laughs) So there we are, another amazing conversation and something that I really feel builds on the themes of the film so brilliantly and really makes you think about the practical applications of genetic modifying and the way that it could be going in the future. The way that it's already going. The way that it's already going, yeah. I think my mind is blown just by the fact that we have affected everything, all life on Earth. I used to think of it as, oh, we're on this path towards total domination of the Earth and climate change and everything, and that we can stop and reverse it. But actually, we've altered everything so much. It's like we've created an alternate dimension there was before humans and there's after humans and Mm. the trajectory of the earth is just so changed by us it's quite incredible it is quite incredible so if you'd like to find out more you can read helen pilcher's brilliant book life changing how humans have altered life on earth and she was also written another book about unextinction which is very similar to the themes that we discussed in jurassic park about whether you can bring back animals that have already gone extinct we'll link to both of those books in our podcast description but that's just about it for us for this week keep tuned to our instagram account and our twitter both at ts movie club and we will speak to you very very soon okay bye 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 oh i've done all the buys bye <laughs>